Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast often deals with graphic, violent and horrific crimes against men, women and children. Please listen at your own discretion. If you are affected by any of the themes featured in this episode, please contact your local support charity. This was Braemar Hill. More often than not, it was just silence. Um, I'd never come across a case like this before. In fact, I, I doubt if there's such a case that occurred in Hong Kong before. So there was huge media attention. Because uh, this was probably the most shocking event in Hong Kong. When I went to the scene and, and saw the body, I was quite shocked because I recognised them. But it's just on that particular day, uh, things went horribly wrong for everyone. Sometimes it's just about being in the wrong place at the wrong moment. Catching Worms, a Hong Kong true crime podcast. In the early 1970s, three men from the UK decided to move to Hong Kong. They didn't know each other or have any plans to meet, but their collective memories have become part of the fabric of Hong Kong's history. The whole of Hong Kong was in shock. It was such an untypical event. It was the safest city of any city of its size in the world, and such events were unknown. One Daily Telegraph advertisement from the 1970s read, Variety, action, comradeship, command. It's all here in Hong Kong, in a colony where 98% of the population is Chinese. Going anywhere special in the next three years will ask you to be a lawyer, welfare officer, diplomat, commander. The list goes on. In contrast to what many thought of as a drab and dreary 1970s Britain, Hong Kong offered intrigue and adventure. The UK was marred by an economic recession, strikes, inflation and an active IRA. Jobs were scarce, but opportunities lay abound in Britain's former colonies for those willing to take the leap. In particular, qualified teachers could find a position in a Hong Kong international school, while the Royal Hong Kong Police were recruiting probationary officers. The fact that it was an armed, disciplined force 
tasked with policing the hot and steamy streets of Hong Kong added an extra dimension of allure. Detective Nori McKillop didn't initially intend to end up in Hong Kong. The Glasgow Police headquarters was just next door. So I wandered, wandered across at lunchtime because I was quite interested in joining the police. And um, a chap met me at the door and uh, I just wanted to pick up a few pamphlets, actually. But he marched me upstairs and said, oh, you want to join the police? Marched me upstairs and ushered me into an assistant commissioner's office. And uh, I had an interview with him and I explained I was just looking for a few pamphlets and he, he said I could be in Tully Allen Police College in a, at the end of the month and I'd be graduating in three months' time and blah, blah, blah. And I thought I was getting kind of railroaded. Anyway, I had a very good Chinese friend when I was in the Merchant Navy and he suggested, well, why don't you join the Hong Kong Police? Which uh, I, I, I never thought really I, I could. So I wrote a letter to uh, the Commissioner of Police in Hong Kong and it reached the woman called Annie Calderwood, who, who was a chief superintendent at the time, a Scottish lady. She, she's died uh, recently, actually. And she wrote a very nice letter to me, encouraged me to join, but explained that I had to join through the, the, um, the Crown Office in London. So I did, wrote to them, and they invited me for an interview. And... Um, so I ended up in the Hong Kong police instead of the Glasgow police. My name's Trevor, Trevor Collins. Uh, I was a member of the Royal Hong Kong Police Force until 1996, 97. Uh, I ended up as a detective superintendent. And uh, throughout my career, the, probably 95% of my career was spent in uh, CID, primarily with uh, specialist units like Homicide Bureau, Organised Crime, Organised Crime and Trial Bureau and the regional crime squads. And why did you decide to join the police force? Uh, I was a policeman in London before I came to Hong Kong. So I was in the Metropolitan Police from uh, 1968 to the time I arrived in Hong Kong in 1973. Uh, I I don't know what made me become a policeman. Uh, I always wanted to be a racing driver, fun enough, and uh, I spent most of my childhood... Uh, preparing to become a, a racing driver of some sort. Uh, after various apprenticeships, uh, I decided that the best way of enjoying uh, riding the motorbikes and fast cars was to become a traffic policeman. Uh, and having joined the Metro Police, I very quickly realized that it wasn't exciting as, as I thought it might be, and I became quite an efficient detective. Anyway, I've been to, I've been at school in Hong Kong for a few years in the sixties, the early sixties, because my father was in the forces, and I always wanted to get back to Hong Kong for a visit because I really enjoyed my time uh, whilst I was there. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult in those days to just go on a holiday to Hong Kong. It's a very expensive place to go, and uh, anyway, I saw some advertisements and uh, popped into the office and applied to to go. I was at training school at the same time as Norrie, in fact, Norrie McKillop. Upon arrival in Hong Kong, all new recruits were assigned as probationary inspectors and had to undergo a six-month training period at a training school, which included an intensive Cantonese course. Trevor Collins and Norrie McKillop met during this training period. The third man to arrive in Hong Kong 
was Chris Force. Christopher Force grew up in the East End of London. Having qualified as a teacher, he got his first teaching job in a cold and damp working-class area of Yorkshire. But one afternoon, thumbing through the Sunday paper, Chris saw an advertisement. It was in the Times Educational Supplement. They were advertising for English-speaking teachers to work for the English Schools Foundation in the warm and exotic Hong Kong. So after three years in Yorkshire, Chris boarded a Boeing 747 flight from London to start a new job and experience a different way of life in Hong Kong. I saw this advertisement in the Times Educational Supplement to go to Hong Kong and uh, I thought, wow, um, it's always been one of my life ambitions to, uh, to go to China. This would be a great, a great stepping stone to exploration of the East. So more in hope than expectation, I applied for a job at Island School, was offered the job and I went to Island School Hong Kong initially for two years. Uh, and I saved for 33 and one third, which is one third of a century, 100 school terms. On the island of Hong Kong, the expat community was growing. So much so that there was a dire need for educational facilities that catered for the non-Cantonese-speaking students. There was already one expat secondary school, King George V School, or KGV as it was known. But the school was wildly overcrowded, with some classes having over 44 students to one teacher. So a second school was needed, and in September 1967, Island School opened its doors to 237 students. The school actually opened its temporary doors, as the need was so great they didn't have time to build a school building. The original Island School was the British Military Hospital in Borrett Road. Now that was designed by Florence Nightingale. That's a good old colonial hospital. That was the original island school. But when Chris arrived, they had moved into the new building that had been constructed across the road from the military hospital. Chris Force describes his first impressions of this new building. The building was not glamorous in the slightest. It was built to education department specifications like any local school in Hong Kong. A very drab, it was quadrangled, um, there was no air conditioning, uh, dampness pervaded, water would run down the walls during the, the humid season. But where it exceeded my expectations was in the student body, who were just so confident and optimistic and enthusiastic about learning, with very high aspirations. Education didn't restrict itself to the four walls of a classroom or even the quadrangles of the school. You don't want to fill their heads with useless knowledge. You want to go in there and make their lives exciting. So they look to the skies. That was the, that was the philosophy of the school. So in this functional building, Chris Force began teaching a buzzing community of students from around the world. And it was very much an expatriate school back in the 70s. 70% 70 of its kids were British expats, white kids. Local Chinese were not permitted to enter the English Schools Foundation except with the permission of the Education Secretary because it wasn't there to plunder the local sector. But in time, if you go there now to the new sites, you'll see there's probably 90% non-white. Although the school makeup has changed over time, in the 1970s and 80s, it was still very much an expatriate school. Serving the children from the Guaylo ghettos of mid-levels, the peak, and the south side beach resorts of Stanley and Repulse Bay. 
the expat community was fondly referred to as guaylos by their Cantonese counterparts. Originally a derogatory term that means white ghost or white devil, the term guaylo has now been fondly adopted by foreigners and locals alike. Many of these guaylos had moved to the English colony of Hong Kong as bankers, lawyers and businessmen, but they wanted their children to experience a British education. The house system is commonly used in British public schools to inspire teamwork and camaraderie, and at Island School it was no different. So house identity was very, very strong at Island School. It was a microcosm of the school anyway. It wasn't just for sporting competitions. Students were taught in their houses, Fleming or Nansen or Rutherford. A lot would depend on the leadership of the house. Uh, and Fleming House had a, shall we say, a very dynamic head of house, very keen that the students do well in sport and every, very competitive. And I, I think that reflected in the way the, the house conducted itself. The student population was split into six houses, each represented by a figure of historical importance. Leonardo da Vinci, Albert Einstein, Alexander Fleming, Fritz Joff Nansen, Ernest Rutherford and William Wilberforce. Kenneth McBride was assigned to Fleming House. I, I taught Kenneth first in the first form, as they called it then, year seven today. Kenneth was always the argumentative one. Uh, it wouldn't take no for an answer, would never let you rest. He would continually be questioning, arguing. It was no wonder then that he was to become a key member of the Island School debate team. Uh, in some ways, I think, it, it sort of covered a degree of shyness. He was very active. He was student union president. He was captain of the rowing team. And also boyfriend to pretty, curly-haired Nicola Myers. Uh, Nicola joined the same class. They were in the same form uh, for Fleming. The family came from Italy. Uh, and, uh, in fact, Nicola became the one Italian student um, taking A-level Italian in the entire school. Um, but she was a very gifted linguist. She did French and she, I believe, did English. And if I have a memory of Nicola, it will always be smiling. Uh, her face just lit up when she conversed. Uh, she was so outgoing bright, breezy personality. You know, they were on the cusp of life. They were just about to enter uh, the world of adulthood. Chris Force, teacher from Island School, remembers them as a happy couple. Uh, my recollection, that it was um, a sixth form romance. They were boy and girlfriend. I mean, to pretend otherwise would be false. I mean, they wouldn't be writing poems to each other if they had just been passing acquaintances. So they were very close. They really admired the best qualities in each other. So I would say probably boy and girlfriend for maybe a year. So it sounds like as, as young people, they were very passionate, very active, very fun to be around, yeah. lo loving life and living a very full life. They certainly did. Yeah, that would be a good summary. Yeah, optimistic, positive, um, socially concerned. Yeah, I think we inculcated that spirit, but it came from within them as well. On the 20th of April, 1985, Kenneth and Nicola had plans to spend the day together. When they didn't return home that evening, their parents reported them missing. As a young couple, aged 17 and 18, 
Was it really that unusual for them not to return home as promised? I asked Detective Nori McKillop if they often received missing person reports. No, uh, no, not in Hong Kong. No, um, not at all, I would say. Um, perhaps a teenager uh, now and again not coming over, staying overnight without telling his parents they might report to the police. But um, no, I wouldn't say it was calm, not at all. When did they report um, Nicola and Kenneth missing? Well, Do you know? Nicola and Kenneth, had, had, as we found out later, had, had gone up to Braemar Hill to, to study uh, with their books. Um, Braemar Hill was named after the picturesque Scottish Highland village of Braemar and sits in the Tai Tam Country Park. Braemar Hill towers 200 metres above North Point, an area to the east side of Hong Kong Island. At the base of the hill are the Braemar Hill mansions, tower blocks of luxury apartments that have a harbour-facing view. A pathway, arched with leafy trees, gives you shade as you hike to the top. From here you can get a stunning view of the sunsets across the famous Victoria Harbour and Kowloon City. Tony Flores was a young journalist working for the news team of a commercial radio station and describes Braemar Hill. This is behind the luxury, uh, uh, luxury apartments. Uh, but a lot of people do go there for a morning walk or, or hiking. You know. um, yeah, well, it was a fair bit. We had to walk from, uh, well, we have to hike, uh, I believe, 20 minutes up, uphill. Uphill in the stifling Hong Kong heat. Uh, to where the older reporters were kept. Braemar Hill was just a stone's throw away from Kenneth's family home in the Braemar Hill mansions and was an area Kenneth knew well. That day, Kenneth and Nicola had decided to go off the beaten track a little to find a quiet spot to study, as Detective Trevor Collins remembers. Uh, but it's not a place where, you know, you had lots of people going to. And, and their particular area they were in was, was not, could not be clearly seen from the back of Bramer Hill Mansions or the buildings next to it, Bramer Hill Mansions. And it was very late at night um, when the father went out looking for them because there was no sign of them coming home. The police would not have been too worried at this stage. He reported that, that late that night, uh, the missing uh, teenagers. But the police wouldn't have taken any real proactive measures uh, uh, at that time because they, they, weren't, they weren't really young children. Uh, there was nothing suspicious other than the fact that they hadn't turned up for, at home. But this was unusual for Nicola and Kenneth. They weren't the type of kids to stay out late get into mischief or have their parents worry. It would be completely out of character, as Detective Nori McKillop explains. Well, did we know about them? Nothing, nothing bad. They were good friends. Um, they were quite close friends, as far as we're, we're aware. The, the parents were, Nicola was Jewish. Uh, Kenneth was um, a Scottish Catholic, I believe. Um, and the, the parents were very religious. He had a sister. And so there was, there was nothing, uh, nothing uh, that we could say that was anything. We, we never found any derogatory information about either of these, of these uh, young people or the families. So why hadn't they come home? 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then eventually, uh, if it's true, we got some information. We were told that there were two bodies found. Uh, one was a female and uh, it was a male. Expectorate and the female was semi-naked. On the morning of Sunday the 21st of April, Tony Flores, a journalist from a local commercial radio station, was sent to Braemar Hill. Waiting with other journalists on the hillside, they didn't know what had happened or why there were so many police. few people ever went there in those days you'd get the occasional jogger and that's how the, the bodies were found obviously that was detective trevor collins his counterpart detective nori mckillop was one of the first to see the bodies and they weren't hidden in any way they weren't no, no attempt to hide the bodies whatsoever they were lying in the open in not in jungle or undergrowth um but in there's very you know, one foot tall scrub, um, not in any way hidden and easily uh, easily viewable, not hidden in any bushes or anything like that. Not at all. No, there was no attempt to hide the bodies or cover them with uh, uh, grass or foliage or anything of that nature. And they, they, were, they were left at the side of a, a, what I would describe as a pretty barren hill uh, with no trees, no... Uh, uh, no real scrub, uh, just grass, basically. Detective Nori McKillop continues to tell the story with the help of his cat in the background. Um, in fact, when when I went to the scene and, and saw the body, I was quite shocked because I recognised them. Um, at, at that time, I, I was living up near Tung Shan Terrace. I'd always in Hong Kong. It just it backs onto... The flat that I lived in backed onto the pathway uh, leading along to 
from from Braemar Hill to Island School. And I used to have a small dog, and quite often I would, I didn't know him at the time, but this young lad would come screaming round on his bicycle, round where a big rock particular area, and I seemed to bump into him there, and I recognised him immediately. Um, I didn't know who he was, of course, but uh, I did recognise him small time, a small, small world. So it's quite tragic to see the young man there on the side of the hill. So, so they were good kids, yes. expat, expat kids from yes. expat families? Yes. And they were essentially up in Braemar Hill for a walk or to study? To study. It was a nice afternoon. Um, I recall because I actually I wasn't very far away f- uh, from them when at the time they were they were being murdered. I was spending the afternoon with a family of a, f- a friend of a, of mine um, at Braemar Hill in in the flats there, uh, which is just a stone's throw from where the murders took place. Um, and it was just a beautiful day. It was yes. Kenneth and Nicola were in the debate team and were due to go to their teacher's apartment on that Sunday evening to begin prepping for the inter-school debate competition. It was one o'clock on a sunny Sunday afternoon, April the 21st, 1985, and the telephone rang. This is Chris Force, teacher from Ireland School. And I could tell at the end of the phone was the head girl, Masumi Roy, trying to tell me something. Uh, She was hysterical. There was a lot of noise in the background. I couldn't really initially pick up what she was saying. Uh, And Masumi said, they're dead. They're dead. They found them on the side of a hill. They'd be murdered. I said, who? What are you talking about? said, Kenneth and Nicola, they've been murdered. Um, And she was speaking from the police station. Chris Force remembers how he felt after that telephone call. I I put down the phone and I walked out onto my balcony and looked up at the peak. Victoria Peak is the highest point on Hong Kong Island. I looked up and for those few moments, Kenneth and Nicola were my children and I was their father. And I think that's a feeling that anyone who has children would have felt at that time. It was like an existential moment, a moment in which you reflect on so many different meanings. After I heard the news and had sort of sat down and sort of composed myself, I then began to ring key members of staff and the reactions varied from horror uh, to stunned silence. One of the people Chris called was the vice principal, David James, who was later quoted remembering the overwhelming feeling of such grief, grief you could never imagine happening in a school. You don't know what to do. I remember going into my form um, and telling him about Kenneth and Nicola and it was just silent, just absolute stunned silence. Those who knew already came in with black armbands and immediately the discussion turned to whether we should close the school for the day. Kenneth and Nicola themselves would not want life to be disrupted. Life must go on. And there was no question that they would not they would want us to 
shut down our lives because they were so full of life. Whilst the news of Kenneth and Nicola was percolating through the school community, Detective Trevor Collins and Norrie McKillop were first on the scene to begin their investigations. And did you attend the, the scene that day? Yes, I did. As soon as the bodies were found, there was a, was a huge collar. Um, uh, yeah, uh, it was. It was. Uh, it was quite a scene, in fact, because it was a huge, huge area. And uh, when we got there, of course, uh, the bodies were still there. We were having difficulties in how to uh, get the bodies off the off the hillside. And, and of course, then we had to call in as many people as we could to to conduct a, a search of the area. So we, we were called onto the case immediately. And my, my team was assigned the case, but uh, it's not only my team who attended the scene. The local police, uh, we, we brought in the police tactical unit to do searches. Um, there's quite a lot of manpower available. But the whole of the organised and serious crime bureau was called out, all four divisions. Dr Robert Green holds an OBE for his services to forensic science. He worked for the UK Home Office as Head of Science and Technology in the Police and Crime Standards Directorate and has over 30 years practical experience in crime scene investigation. I asked him what the first step would be in this type of investigation. Um, so the, the question was, um, if you had... Uh, something that had occurred in the in the open, um, what would be the, the difficulties on, on a hillside? First and foremost, of course, is, is access. Um, so how would you physically get to, uh, um, to to the scene? And, you know, potentially how much evidence might you destroy on, on that route to the scene? So one of the first things we would want to try to uh, establish is what we would refer to as a common approach path, a pathway that all the police officers and all the that the specialists that are actually going to come to this scene um, would would follow, um, and of course that would need to be uh, to be searched meticulously, so we can be sure that we're not trampling on evidence. Um, so we first and foremost need to get to the the body. So, with an access route in place, I asked Detective Nori McKillop, how many people were called out to the scene? The scene. The scene was called enough, uh, so the, the actual scene um, in the vicinity around it, the near vicinity, was was very strictly controlled. Uh, almost immediately when we arrived, we cordoned it off and um, to, to stop any contamination and to allow the forensic scientists to, to do their work. Uh, but in a, in a broader area, we, we very quickly brought in the police tactical unit for manpower to do sweeps of the hillside, to looking for any any kind of clues, um, murder weapon or anything that would, would help us to find out what it went on. But finding clues in this environment isn't the most simple of tasks, as Dr Robert Green explains. Um, you know, difficulties that you face, particularly with, um, you know, with an outside crime scene, things like, you know, fibre evidence, um, you know, not very persistent evidence, Good quality evidence, of course, uh, but of course you can imagine you're know, a hillside with wind blowing and so forth. You know it, it could dislodge fibres and, and blow them away. Um, so all of those things you have to contend with. Of course, the, the other thing to mention 
is that you know you, you assume that with the, the hillside, the openness of the the scene, it becomes more difficult to um, um, you know, to control. Um, you know, if you have a scene that's that's very confined, it's more easily managed. If you have something that's that's wider still, um, it's it's much more difficult. And as Tony Flores recalls, the police were concerned. It's, it's a big area, you know. The police were saying at that time they said it's very difficult, very difficult. So talk me through uh, what were the difficulties? Well, the difficulties were just sheer the, the, the location itself. There's no sort of uh, roads, sort of just a jogging pathway as it was in those days, and the area where the where the two found was a covered uh, reservoir. This is Detective Trevor Collins. It's the area they were sitting at when they were doing their studying. Uh, and then, of course, it's just uh, wilderness, uh, bushes and, and such like. And, of course, we found uh, items scattered all over the, all over the place, particularly was a stream that was, that was running through the area where the, the culprits had obviously uh, tried to destroy uh, certain items of uh, evidential value. Over the next few days, we did the, a complete uh, hillside uh, sweep, you know, sort of shoulder-to-shoulder type of uh, search of the area. We then sort of tried to, tried to get our heads around how we were going to tackle this. And I'm sure you've seen it on TV many times of lines of police officers, you know, on their hands and knees going across the ground trying to look for clues. Well, this is exactly the type of... Uh, operation that we were conducting in the early days of this investigation, which needed a lot of manpower. As Detective Nori McKillop just described, hundreds of officers combed the scrub bushland of Braemar Hill. The search began at 4am and lasted for over 13 hours. I asked forensic scientist Robert Green, what were the problems with this type of search? And one of the things that I wonder about is you see lines of police officers all stood side by side, traipsing through the hillside or traipsing through the, the grass looking for pieces of evidence, like in a, in, a, in a really long line. But part of me wonders, is that the best approach or could they therefore be be stepping on it? Well, it, it's, I mean, you would expect, of course, I mean, there are different um methods of searching um and, and it's a great point you make about searching because there, there, you know, there is a whole you know i suppose psychology of, of associated with searching um and you know th- that line search um you know is considered the, the, the best uh, method for you know covering a large area uh, and you would have the police officers looking downwards um you know as they were walking forward um you know uh, and, and you, you would hope that sort of that things weren't missed but it's interesting you know that that, that sometimes you know you you, you set off um on these searches and i, I can recall it vividly um uh, you know on, on, on occasions where we've been trampling across fields um when someone said actually um susie what, what are we actually looking for here um and we'd all look to each other and say well actually you know we're looking for something that's untoward so that's one of the difficulties often with, with the police search is that you, you're not always sure of what you're looking for. Let me just explain that a little bit more. For someone now of increasingly advancing years, um, I lose my car keys most days uh, and then have to have a frantic search around the house. Where have I left the car keys? But on that occasion, you see, I know that I'm looking for the car keys. 
can you imagine you know searching at a hillside where you've got you know a line of police officers where you're actually not quite sure what you're looking for a hammer or a knife then that, that's obvious but there's sometimes subtle little clues that you know, after the event become very obvious uh, but at, at the time were not so so obvious so that's one of the difficulties with with that type of, of search or with any type of searching um that you, you know you don't sometimes know what it is you're you, you know, you're looking for. At that time, um, the police, you know, every day for almost a week, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of police officers up on the hill, uh, informing and they snake their way up the hill, a long line of police officers, and then they spread out the fan down. Uh, they comb the, the entire area looking for uh, important uh, pieces of, uh, you know, uh, um, information, evidence that they can find to help them solve the case. Journalist Tony Flores recalls speaking to the officers at the scene. So uh, we spoke to some officers at the scene and they were very concerned. They said because this is a very large area, it's a hill, and anybody can, uh, it's on a mountain, right? Anybody can be up there. So uh, they worried that they will never be able to catch the killers. Next time on Catching Worms. The bodies were still there. We were having difficulties in how to uh get the bodies off the off the hillside. And it made no difference that the, the, the deceased were Europeans or whether they were Chinese or whatever race or whatever, it didn't make any difference to us. Very little evidence to go on the scene because there's no witnesses. Some, some, some people were saying, could there be a serial killer you know, lurking around in the area? It's not easy to kill people. The most notorious murder in Hong Kong. The worry that they will never be able to catch the killers. In memory of Nicola and Kenneth, the school set up the Nicola Myers and Kenneth McBride Memorial Fund. The fund aims to support underprivileged sixth formers from across Hong Kong. If you would like to give to the fund, please see the information in the show description. This has been a Create Podcast. Make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. It helps others to find us. You can follow us on Instagram at CatchingWormsHK. With special thanks to Detective Nori McKillop, Detective Trevor Collins, Chris Force, former teacher at Island School, Sean Ellis from Cinebrand, Forensic Specialist Dr Robert Green and Journalist Tony Flores. And thank you for listening. Catching Worms Jok Chong This term means to get yourself into trouble, causing unnecessary difficulties. It may seem like an odd phrase, but this slang is often used as an abbreviation of the full saying Jok Chong Yap Si Fat. That involves putting set worms up your rear end.
which to anyone's imagination definitely spells trouble indeed. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big. 